Chris here. This is Let's Find Out. And usually, I'd tell you here that we're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. But as you might have heard, to our great sadness, the network has wound down. We are super grateful for their support over the years, and we're going to miss them a lot. But we've been very lucky to have been scooped up into a different media family. That's right, Trevor here. As of this month, Let's Find Out is now a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton. Woohoo! That's a local journalism initiative that is doing some of the most interesting, curiosity-driven, thoughtful reporting in our city. Now that we're a partner, they'll be supporting the cost of producing the show and helping us spread our stories even farther. As a listener, you shouldn't notice anything different in the sound of the show or how it gets to you. But if you sign up for Taproot's newsletters, especially their daily newsletter, The Pulse, you'll see an extra story once a month expanding on our work here on Let's Find Out. You can become a Taproot reader for free at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. So we're going to wind down the Patreon. Thank you to everyone who signed up for that. Uh, it's been so heartening to see your support. As a thank you, all of our existing Patreon subscribers are getting a year free of Taproot membership as we transition over. If you want to financially support Let's Find Out in the future, we encourage you to become a Taproot member instead. For just 10 bucks a month or $100 a year, you can help make sure that everyone continues to have free access to Let's Find Out and Taproot's other podcasts like Speaking Municipally, plus the rest of Taproot's coverage of city council and food and arts and tech and the like. You can learn more about that at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. Okay, on with the show. I'm bored. I'm sorry, Elliot. I just wish there was something we could do, but look outside. It's snowing. And it's so cold. When is it going to stop snowing? I just wish there was something we could do. Maybe they have something at a park that we could do. They might. Can you look it up online, please? Okay, sure. Huh. Well, what do you know? It says right here that the city of Edmonton has an outdoor adventure in Victoria Park. Fun! (laughs) Let's try it out! All right, let's go. Yay! What's that? It's a recorder. Oh. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You got your mitts? Yeah. Maybe we should do up your jacket. Says outdoor adventure experience. Warming fire. Free. Saturday and Sunday, 6 to 8 p.m. Please here. You want to get a set here? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, snowshoeing would be fun. Yeah? You want to try some of these on? They're like deeper snow. I mean, if you go like into the golf course, like onto the cross country skiing ground. This is really deep snow! (laughs) (laughs) 
snow. Can you hold this? Maybe you should have your mitts on. Uh, fine. <laughs> I'm gonna go That's skiing. That did not work out. You tired? Should we return your snow pants, uh, snowshoes? Um. Well, yours too. Yeah. <laughs> you remember seeing me out there? Yeah. While I was walking. We found deep snow. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> we we also read there was snow fort building. Yeah, but so it's just basically grab a shovel and do what you want. Okay. Yeah. People building over there right now. What's you want to use the shovel? Go for it. Okay. Go digging if you want. We're renovating. What are we renovating? A snow fort! <laughs> Wait. Hi, this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwachi Waskaigan, on Treaty 6 territory and Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This season, we're digging into questions about parks and natural spaces in Edmonton. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Trevor Chow Fraser. And this month, we're answering... My question... Excuse me? <laughs> That's right. My question. <laughs> Listen, Chris, I wanted to tackle a big, serious question from our listeners. But it's been a long winter. A long winter. Mm. Stuck indoors with two highly combustible human beings. Mm. And I'm, I just need, really need to get everybody outside, okay? <laughs> okay, I, I sympathize. I, I sympathize with your struggle here. Yes, so... Our question this month is one deeply rooted in my self-interest, but I'm also genuinely curious. I've heard that Edmonton is a winter city, and I know that means, you know, tons of festivals. I know it means uh, cleared bike paths, especially the one right out front of my house. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen even those like weird fire umbrellas on patios, and I know that's connected to winter city somehow. Mm. But what about our parks? How are they transformed in the winter months to live up to the winter city ideal? I always try to take advantage of special events like Silver Skate or the Canoe Volant Festival, but I rarely just go out to hang in the park on an everyday weekend. And why not? Because I didn't think that they were winter city parks. But it turns out, not only is there lots to do, but the city is actively transforming our parks to be more inviting to kids and grown-ups alike. So as you heard, at the, at the open, I took Elliot out to Victoria Park uh, some uh, weekend in March where we took advantage of free snowshoeing and fort building. Mm -hmm. And the activity leader there, who you heard, Ryan, I followed up with her to kindly ask her to share a bit about uh, how the whole program works. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm here at Victoria Skating Rink, um, talking to Ryan, and um, 
So I was just wondering if you could tell us what the winter recreation programming is that you're, that you're involved with. All right, so our weekend programs are all free. They're from two to eight. It changes every month, our programs that we do. So this month here, we're doing snowshoeing and fort building. And then last month we did orienteering on the weekends. And then in January, we had kick sledding here, which is kind of like a version of dog sledding but with no dogs, yeah. <laughs> uh, we also are, during the week, we have our school programs for the most part, where we do kick sledding, snowshoeing. Cool. And then we have fires from six to eight that are free. Sometimes they start earlier, depending on how cold it is. Um, so, so I actually discovered this uh, because I was looking at the city's like Winter City website. Yeah. Um, so as someone who works this program, what do you like what what what's a highlight for you from working out here all uh, winter long? My highlight is honestly seeing the kids and even the adults like families coming out and spending more time together. You don't see that a lot anymore when with lots of families most kids go out with their friends and stuff like that. So I believe it brings a lot of families together as well and that makes me happy to see. So That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> is there like a moment you're thinking about with that? Um I think I would say, I had a Ukrainian family actually, they had been separated for a while because of the war and that kind of stuff. So uh, the parent or like the kids and their mom had got out first and they were waiting for their dad. And when their dad finally came back, uh, they, were, they all came out to skate and snowshoe and that kind of stuff. And they were telling me this story. And I think them being here, finally being able to be all together as a family and being able to do activities was a huge success for them and for us being able to help them keep being a family, I guess, and being able to enjoy their activities. Yeah, that's really amazing. Uh, maybe one last question. Do you, do you think Edmonton is a winter city? I do believe it is a winter city, yes. It's, yeah stupid cold here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Edmonton can indeed be stupidly cold. <laughs> yeah. I appreciated her candor. Uh, and yes, it's a cold winter, which makes for great outdoor skating. Thank goodness. Uh, you know, something caught my eye at the Victoria Skating Oval, something that makes the cold winter weather a lot more inviting. Is it a buckyball? Is it one of Buckminster Fuller's geodesic domes? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a warming hut. <laughs> I'll pretend I know what you're talking about. Mm. I just wanted to know more about this warming hut and how it got there. So with a little online sleuthing, I got in touch with someone who is very close to the project, a local designer named Daniel Sonef. She's an MA student at the University of Alberta, studying winter city design and governance. And she's also a professional arc, uh, designer. So I wanted to ask her about the warming huts and also talk about how our parks can be designed to encourage people to get out there all throughout the winter. We met up with Danielle downtown on an afternoon basking in that late winter sunshine, the uh, very soothing and relaxing sounds of the city all around us. Hi, I'm Trevor. Hi, I'm Danielle. Danielle, hey. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. 
Oh, hello. Chris. Hi. I, um, this is very loud. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> but it's great streetscape material. Yeah. It is. yeah. So in my last year of undergrad in industrial design, we uh, had a really awesome instructor, Carmen Duville, she's in Toronto now. Uh, she, she was a sessional instructor and she gave us a design problem to design a piece of furniture for an underutilized space. And so it was like January at the U of A and I'm walking through campus to get home and you're like, all of these spaces outdoors are dead, but it's sunny. And if I could just like sit on a bench that had a little bit of uh, wind shelter, like I could be outside, but the environment from the climate to the um, like material culture, the, the built items are hostile to me doing that. And so myself and two classmates, we kind of dove into that problem and we decided to, I, I had already been looking at the, um, so the strategy was about, Winter City strategy was two years old at that point. They had just put out the design guidelines and I had really been diving into that and so I was like, got into this idea of warming huts. And so we built one. What is a warming hut? Well, there are lots of different interpretations of what a warming hut is. Um, in my perspective, it's an object that allows you to warm up. And so for me, there's um, some design parameters that need to go into that. You need to have some sort of wind blocking. You need to have some sort of orientation towards the sun so you can gain um, uh, solar exposure, potentially a thermal mass, so you can keep um, some stored energy, um, kind of a, a passive system. But it, yeah, it can vary. So what was the solution that you came up with with your team? Uh, so we had um, a pretty like uh, formal structure. It really looked like a sauna. So many people that uh, looked at it were like, oh, it's a sauna. And then they would go inside and they're like, oh, there's no heater. So the structure had like a... Um, a 30 degree like window plane on it so you could face it towards the sun and then the whole back and sides were this built-in bench structure that we painted orange behind it and then we put a faux shoshugiban wood over it which is that like Chinese or Japanese burnt wood if you've ever seen that uh, they the proper way to do it is with cedar we did it with pine because we were students and cedar is expensive um, but it just it looked like a burning ember like the whole hut looked like that um, and so it it the material of it attracted you as it was something that was warm That's so cool. yeah i mean not cool that's so hot <laughs> <It's> so warm. <laughs> cool so that was almost a decade ago <laughs> and the reason i found you was because the city of edmonton last year uh, introduced some kind of warming hut into parks in uh, Rundle Park, Victoria Park, Horlock Park, near skating rinks. So there's these kind of plastic geodesic domes that um, you can go in and I guess they're warmer. I haven't been able to test it in like minus 20, but <laughs> it definitely captures the sun and it's a nice place just to lace up and there's a picnic table. Um, and they, they said that you were key to the creative process of that. So. How did we go from your 
uh, U of A project to this being like a potentially permanent thing in Edmonton's parks? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question, but um, so after I graduated, I proposed to the Winter City strategy to run a pilot project. It was called Local Warming. And so I wanted money from the city um, and also, uh, what was it called? Make Something Edmonton. I think they also contributed that year as well. Because um, I wanted to build some of these and test them out to basically make the case for them. So um, I got some funding uh, to, to build two more huts. And these ones I kind of designed a little bit differently. Learned a lot of excellent things off that design as well. They were a little bit more like had a bit of a space theme. One was all like this mirrored siding and the other one was jet black that had all the this like pine interior. So like a little Scandinavian vibe on that one. I got the the money to to build those and we tested them in Horlack Park one year and then they moved to Victoria and then moved to Rundle. <laughs> Did anything surprise you about the way that people interacted with them? Well, mostly what the material said to people, like the one that we called it the solar sauna because people kept being like, it's a sauna. And we're like, no, it's not. <laughs> um, but just how much that resonates with people um, and the like the spacey ones, there were so many kids that were like, I saw some kids playing Star Wars around them. And I'm like, this is fun. Um, Mostly what surprised me was just how excited people were to have this object that facilitated what they wanted to do in the winter. They wanted to go do an activity and they needed a spot to warm up for a few minutes, have a like a glass of hot chocolate, um, put on their skates. Uh, I hate taking my gloves off because my hands get instantly cold. So it's like if you're if you can take the wind exposure out of that it's definitely helps keep you a bit warmer and it, if you're with kids and you have to do up you take off the boots do up the skates and it's like you know it's it's even more time that you're exposed and plus like kids get cold so yeah we we wanted to design something that would gain that bit of solar exposure because Edmonton's one of the sunniest cities in Canada um gain that solar exposure and block the wind so if my count is right, Danielle built three different warming huts. She helped get a fourth one built through her competition. They were out in the wild for years and people loved them. We're talking more than just newspaper columnists, real people coming in out of the cold. And despite all of this, Danielle shared with us that she considers the pilot a failure. The reason being, the city didn't continue to invest in the project. They didn't build more huts. They didn't try out new designs or different spaces all across the city. And it was while reflecting on this failure that she came to see winter design as being about the broader systems rather than just the specific uh, objects or interventions. Hmm. In other words, it's not just a problem for an industrial designer. Hmm. So how does an individual intervention item thing, like a warming hut, how is it affected by those bigger system issues of how people use parks in winter? When I had those warming huts in Victoria Park, I, in my opinion, they failed and I wanted to know why. I was like, come on, I built this object, I put it in space, why is this 
failing once it's here. And I realized how much context matters in design, especially in social design, um, and how much the system around it works. And Victoria is a really cool case because it's a lar one of the largest parks. You gotta drive to it, take the bus to it. There are some pathways, but it, it's not a very well-connected park. Even though it's just down, I think it's like 215 stairs from Oliver, um, one of the densest neighborhoods in the city. It's um, it's pretty isolated. So in itself, it's like a closed system. So we put these warming huts there and there's this skate trail and there's a beautiful building where there's a washroom. The access to that washroom is a little bit closed off, um, especially when the speed skating is happening. You're like, uh, can I can I go to this space? Can I not go to this space? You kind of feel like you shouldn't, like it's part of the, the groups. Um, there's nowhere to get a snack and there's nowhere other than the huts to warm up. Um, so in looking at the system of Victoria Park, uh, I was like, Sy systems approach to design really matters. How people get to a space, what helps keep them there, encourages them to linger, what's the user experience? And I realized in Victoria Park, just as a, a park, how lacking it was. So. That got me curious. How does this initiative that most of, like many Canadian and US cities are, are adapting now, this, this Winter City Design Guides, Guidelines, like how is that really influencing how we govern public spaces and how we design for them? So when we got this big park that's supposed to be like the, the downtown jewel, the, the paradise or whatever they call it, at this point, we should probably explain where we met Danielle. Uh, we decided to meet at the site that she's studying for her master's research, which is a bunch of very desolate parking lots between Jasper and 102nd Ave, steps away from Corona LRT station and Audrey's books. Desolate is a technical term. Mm -hmm. One step mm -hmm. away from derelict. <laughs> Standing right now uh, in the site of the future downtown <laughs> warehouse park, full name TBD. Uh, I think the naming committee, which we are now very familiar with, will be coming out with a name sometime in the next year or two. And it is gorgeous right now. There's um, some abandoned tinsel on a pole. There's um, some debris in this uh, alley. Uh, a lot of slush and empty parking spaces. Yeah, um, it's definitely a concrete wasteland. Um, hopefully we'll be... So the city has designed this future downtown park to be used all year round, according to the public consultation that wrapped up in the fall of 22, by building in wintry features like a toboggan hill and a skating rink, maybe. There's going to be a pavilion for warming up and fire pits. And Danielle pointed out a whole lot more that you might not think about unless you're a park designer, talking about the placement and the angle of a pavilion, understanding where the sun hits in winter when it's low on the horizon, thinking about how buildings channel wind through a park and how to block or dampen the frigid gales. How is the space lit at night? Not only for safety, which is something I thought of, but to draw someone in and create novel environments, something I never would have thought of. She even got into the choice of trees and plants. Obviously how a space looks from winter, high winter to low summer or high summer is gonna be totally different. Um, Trees are going to lose their leaves, um, other ones will keep their, their greenery from deciduous to coniferous, but there's also um, like 
leaf structure are they like flat leaves do they look um, like they hold a lot of water like that adds a lot of texture and greenery throughout the winter when the deciduous leaves fall so it's really just using winter as an asset instead of a deterrent so if you're using frost as a way to design a space so like how does frost sit on foliage when it is sitting in a winter space like how does that look what type of shapes and textures um, and reflection does it create off of plantings how do the plantings um, help define paths um, a little bit of visual interest at varying scales that's how it we create a visually appealing uh, environment through um, plantings in one component. So it's like about just creating a, a space that's still interesting in the winter, that still draws people in. Yeah, it's about creating a space that's just as interesting in the winter as it is in the summer. And a very famous um, landscape architect, Pete Udolf, which I'm sure I butchered that, but he did the landscape or the horticulture um, component of the high level line in New York. Um, I believe he's Danish. Um, you know, he says that the test of a space is if it is just as good in the winter as it is in the summer. And he creates really beautiful spaces. Um, and the horticulture is just one component of it. I mean, this space it's sunny right now we're in mid-march what does this look like in january when you're the sun is dropped lower likely to be cut off from that building um, the whole orientation of the site is a big component of it so where is the sun going to be at different times of the day how does um, the light reflect around the space how is it blocked by buildings and how are you positioning the built form in the landscape to capture the sun and block the wind? At a base design level, that's, those are some of the winter city design principles that you need to have. Given that you've been part of this, like, how do we live out the winter city strategy thing? It implies the opposite, kind of, that like Edmonton has like some work to do to be a, like, rich, fulfilling city in winter. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think are, is there a park in Edmonton that you look at and you just like shake your head like this was clearly copied and pasted from Europe or California? No, not copy and pasted, but when I look at um, Horlock Park and Victoria Park, and I look at I compare that to the Forks and the Arctic Glacier Winter Park in Winnipeg, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Win Winter Park in Winnipeg, which just got a preface, has a totally different style of funding, municipal, provincial, and federal funding. It's also a heritage site. Um, they, they are defining how how you can create space that will encourage people to come into and spend the day in in, a, in winter and their their busiest time is between January and March and then they completely adapt that to the summer where they take away all the winter infrastructure and they utilize the river and they have paddle boats and they have all this this access to the water it's it's a wonderfully adaptive place that is a essentially a closed system like you can spend the whole day there there's commercial opportunities there's free opportunities um, and pretty much anything that you want 
I've been, only been to the Forks in the summer, I'm now realizing. What am I missing? Oh, so much. Um, so, uh, again, in my undergrad, I went to Winnipeg during spring break. Um, <laughs> I got a grant to go there. Everyone else went to Palm Springs. Um, and I went to Winnipeg. Um, but, like, my partner and I went, and we were like, we need to check this out, because I was going to apply for the Warming Hut competition, and I wanted to know, like, what was going on. So we flew there. We brought, like, all our winter gear. It was minus 30 plus wind chill. Um, we, we stayed relatively close to the site. We went there. We got, we rented skates, which is a big thing. If you're thinking about, like, visiting a space, and you're like, well, I don't want to bring my skates to Winnipeg, you can rent them there. You put them on, you can go for a six kilometer skate down the, um, uh, I forget which river, the Red and the... Uh, yeah, Cinnaboy. <laughs> okay, Cinnaboy. Um, and then, and check out like warming huts and installations all along the way, and then come all the way back. Um, and then you can like return your skates, you can get like a hot chocolate, there's a fire that's lit there. There's like fire, open fire pits all around there. You can play corker curl. Like there's so much to encourage you to be outside participating in activity um, or just um, like leisurely hanging out. But the whole area is designed around a few central nodes. And so you have wind separation in that kind of main area where um, you can like go into the uh, big buildings there where all of the restaurants are, but there's like a central fire pit and everything kind of uh, faces it. And then there's some more spread out areas. So it's really, there's a lot of um, variation in the uh, like activities and in how they're like the space is oriented. Now, I don't think it was designed to block wind, but you have enough things there. There's like a really, there's a serious critical mass of the commercial opportunities and the free opportunities, um, as well as like passive and active like leisure things to do you can get lunch you can get hot chocolate you can roast a marshmallow you can spend all day there really easily so thanks so much danielle this has been really great um in my quest to discover what i can do outside in the parks in the winter uh you've You've told me a lot about what I could be doing <laughs> if the city was, <laughs> when the city is better designed. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for asking. <laughs> My pleasure. So I really enjoyed that conversation. It was nice uh, not only talking with Danielle, but to be down there standing in the future park, something I tried to do a couple episodes ago. <laughs> I used to live on Jasper Avenue when I first moved out west, actually, and I used to fantasize about those parking lots and how great it would be to have something like uh, a Park La Fontaine or a Halifax Public Gardens, but here in Edmonton, my new home. All that parking is just such an obvious waste. <laughs> So I was really blown away to learn that it was secretly being turned into a park that whole time. Yeah, d downtown Edmonton really does feel like it's lacking in some public amenities right now. Green space, especially. Even that new little park, Alex Decoteau Park downtown, is very concrete-y. 
Maybe no greenery? I'm not even <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it's nice that, like you say, there's some green space being built in downtown. Yeah. I heard a lot of positive things from Danielle, but there was one negative that just really stuck out to me. It's how she considered the warming huts a failure. She said it failed. Um, and I want to know more about that. So I've lined up one more guest for the show. Ooh. We're going to meet with Isla Tanaka, winter city planner for the city of Edmonton. Sounds like the exact person we want to talk to. Hmm? We're going to ask her about the warming huts pilot and grill her to find out how we went from having a cozy burning ember to a breezy see-through sphere. We met up with Isla in a little park outside of the Park Allen Community League. So I'm Isla Tanaka and I'm the Winter City Planner for the City of Edmonton. Cool. So um, this is the 10th winter in the Winter City Strategy and according to LinkedIn I think you joined 10 years ago. So is that, are you like, are you the Winter City Strategy? <laughs> well actually I was, yes, I was hired after the strategy itself was completed and I was hired when the implementation plan was being written. Um, so uh, May 2013 was when I was hired and that summer we spent um, the whole summer writing the implementation plan uh, which gave us the roadmap for completing the strategy and so we started working on the strategy that fall. Uh, so I was not the coordinator at that time uh, but I have been for the last four years. Yeah, But I have been working on the strategy itself for 10 years, yes. So what brought you, like what attracted you to wanting to do winter city planning? Ah, so I was living in Prince George. I actually grew up in Edmonton, um, but I was born in northern Alberta and um, grew up here and then um, moved up north again when my children were small for a couple of years and then uh, the family ended up in Prince George in BC. And I did a master's degree at the University of Northern BC and I looked at outdoor recreation spaces, so parks basically in winter cities and how they're designed and how we promote them or don't promote them for winter use. So when I saw Edmonton was developing the strategy, um, I contacted the coordinator and a student position opened up actually. So I was hired first as a, as a grad student uh, and then that turned into a permanent position with the city. Okay. That's awesome. Is there, um, like, was there something that you learned about that kind of propelled you forward in your studies and, and your work? Um, so, well, I, th I think it was more, having grown up here and having not seen a lot of activity in the parks in the wintertime, I, I did cross-country ski. I started cross-country skiing in high school, but the parks weren't busy in the winter. And then when my children were small, um, it, there was a lot of skating, but not a lot of other things going on. And then moving to Prince George, too, when my children were a little bit older, um, I... I realized that we really gravitated to certain parks and other people seemed to gravitate to certain parks. And they were parks that were designed so that they could be used in all seasons. And so I started to think about why and what is it and what are those design elements and then how are we promoting those parks. Um, you know, Edmonton and Prince George and a lot of winter cities have a lot of great park infrastructure but they just weren't advertising it. And so. I was interested in why and how can we improve those parks in the winter times. 
Isla's work on the Winter City strategy has been doing just that. She told us about five principles for winter-appropriate park design, and a lot of it actually mirrored what Danielle had told us earlier. It's about capturing the sunshine, blocking the wind, thinking about the infrastructure and the services. She even got down to talking about the greenery and foliage. There's one thing she said that really struck me. Um, so, for example, if you have a, a pavilion in a park, you would want the, the main entrance and any kind of outdoor seating spaces to be on the south side, right? because that's where it's going to be sheltered from the north wind and it will capture that beautiful afternoon sunshine. And so when, when you do those two basic principles of winter design, you block the wind, you capture the sunshine, that little microclimate space can actually feel 10 to 15 degrees warmer. So if it's minus 10, it can feel zero or plus five in that space. So that's where you want to put the seating. So the parks that have those pavilions where they have the south side facing seating, that's a great space for people to sit and, um, you know, have a break, warm up a little bit, have some hot chocolate and then keep going. Now, this was obviously a great way to bridge to talking about the warming huts that Danielle had worked on with Isla. Such a natural segue that we totally don't need to script it in like we're doing right now. Um, so the a number of times you there, you mentioned warming and blocking wind. And um, one of the things that I encountered when I was taking my kids out to uh, Victoria Park was these geodesic domes, the warming huts. And that's what led us to talk to Danielle about the Warming Huts project more broadly. So, um, yeah, can you tell us a bit about how, why did the city support this pilot program to, to build Warming Huts and place them in the parks? And then how did that become these maybe permanent <laughs> Warming Huts that have been there the last two years? Right, so, um, so some of our parks um, have very little winter infrastructure. A lot of the parks were developed in the 70s uh, when we didn't really think about uh, winter use of the parks. Um, you've probably noticed also a lot of the washrooms get closed in the wintertime and that's because the sewer lines were put in quite shallow and so they freeze, so we have to close them. So part of what we did with the uh, winter design guidelines when we wrote those was to take a winter design policy to council. And so any new developments or redevelopments by the city have to consider four season design. So all new pavilions going in in the river valley will be four season pavilions. So for now, we thought, well, how can we do something? How can we add some infrastructure to the parts to help keep people a bit warmer? Uh, and so we looked at warming huts, and Danielle's idea was an excellent idea. Um, we used um, hers for a couple of winters. We ran a pilot project. Um, the, the big challenge we had um, after the pilot project when we were looking at should we purchase some was storage. We did have trouble finding um, a place to store them for the summer, um, and then it we, you know, Danielle was a great partner to work with, um, and she's had some great ideas, and, you know, she's sat on um, a working group, um, and uh, it was just, we just could not find storage for, for purchasing her huts. Um, the domes, what we've done is we have leased those, so we don't have to worry about storage, uh, but they go in in the fall, and they come out in the spring, uh, and they perform the same function. Um, so there are places where people can sit and warm up and put on skates, 
put on cross-country skis, have some hot chocolate, things like that. Can you talk about the role of piloting within the Winter City strategy? Like, to me, the Winter City strategy is a bit of a... It already sounds a bit experimental. Like, it's how can we transform our city into something new? So how do you approach piloting within that, within your program? Right, well, piloting is an excellent tool that cities have for trying something that might sometimes be outside current regulations. And so we can use piloting to say, let's try this. If it doesn't work, that's okay, we'll learn from it. If it does work, then which regulations do we need to address and which policies do we need to look at to change so that we can implement this on a long-term basis. And so for the Winter City strategy specifically, piloting has been a great tool for us to try all kinds of new things, um, particularly with, with the warming huts, uh, with winter patios uh, was another thing we've piloted. Um, the iceway, the original iceway was a pilot project. Um, it was just to see, can we do this? You know, we know that other winter cities have been putting in skating trails. Edmonton had never really done that. So I said, we'll try it as a pilot project. If it doesn't work, that's okay. If it does, we'll figure out how we can continue. And uh, yeah, it was a very successful pilot. So we now have two of them. <laughs> one at Victoria and one at Rundle. So. And w what would you say is a successful pilot? How do you know it's successful or not? Um, I think as long as we've learned something. So even if it's not something that we haven't continued with, I would still see that as a success because we tried something. Um, one of the actions called, um, you know, for kind of winter fashion and promoting winter fashion, and so we worked with some of the um, local fashion industry to try a winter fashion show, and we tried it for a few years, and it never really took off. And that's okay. Yeah, but the pilot projects themselves are a great tool for trying something new. Um, so you talked about some of the projects you've done in this within your work. Um, I'm wondering if if you go back into the city's past, are there other projects or features of the city and the way that our parks have been designed that kind of predate the Winter City strategy and show that there's a bit of a lineage to to all this uh, planning? I think the city did a pretty good job with like the Alfred Savage Center. It's open year round. That's down at White Mud Park, just off Fox Drive. Um, and it's a fairly new building, predates the strategy, uh, is open year round. It's a four season building, has really big windows, so has really good indoor outdoor interaction. So if someone needs to go and warm up inside, they can sit inside and still see family tobogganing on the hill or you know, just playing outside in the snow. Um, the windows face south, so you get a lot of solar radiation in there. It's nice and warm. So that's a good example that wasn't influenced by the strategy, but somebody really thought that one through. Um, um, you know, there was a Winter Cities movement in the 1980s, and Edmonton was part of that. Um, it, a, a number of cities were involved, and I think the common theme was that they either wrote strategies or wrote design guidelines, but didn't write implementation plans. And so, like many good plans, sat on a shelf. Um, uh, Dr. Norman Pressman um, wrote a lot 
on winter cities and was involved in that initial movement. Uh, we actually consulted with him when we wrote the new strategy as well. Um, but there was also a bit of a focus in the 80s to create indoor spaces for people to be inside. So pedways, for example, were used as a really good example of winter design. We have now changed our focus on that, and the focus of this winter city strategy is getting people outside. Um, so because certainly in Edmonton, the pedways take, tend to take vibrancy off the street because our population isn't, isn't big enough to support inside and outside at the same time. I think what you're making me realize is that it's... Um Part of being a winter city is the infrastructure and the services, but it's also about the culture and just understanding ourselves as winter people. Like, can, can you talk about how you see the city kind of making those two, the culture and the infrastructure, making those two come together? Yeah, certainly. And like I said, one of the pillars is our winter story. And that was all about a culture shift. And when the strategy was being developed, the question that was asked to Edmontonians was, what would help you fall in love with Edmonton in winter? And just asking that question started the conversation. It's also unusual for a city to ask about emotions, right? Usually we say, how are we doing filling the potholes? How often do you want your garbage picked up? But we said, what would help you fall in love with Edmonton in winter? And when we talk to people about their favorite winter memory, it was often a childhood one. Right? Because children play in the snow. Adults forget how to play. We often don't dress properly for being outside. So then we're cold, we want to go in, and the kids want to stay inside, or stay outside, rather. So um, really evoking those childhood memories and getting people to remember those started that conversation. And we really felt that changing the conversation would be the hardest part of the strategy. But what we found was... From the start of talking about it to actually when the strategy was developed and then writing the implementation plan and starting to implement it, people were already talking differently about winter. Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciated discovering through this was that there's weekly uh, programming in the parks. Like, I, I know that there's a lot to do in the winter if you're, like, going to the Canoe Valant, if you're going to Silver Skate Festival. I knew there's, like big things you can do but I didn't know like you can go try out cross-country skiing or snowshoeing or whatever like every multiple days a week uh, through the city so um, yeah like that culture creating that cultural shift is really awesome to see yeah and and there's a difference between having a lot of festivals and making change for everyday life right and so it's the everyday life that you were looking for right going down to a park and being able to try out a kick sled try out some snowshoes I mean, that's, that's a really important piece because, let's face it, investing in any type of equipment is expensive. But if we can invite people to try something new, maybe then they'll go out and, and get their own snowshoes or their own skates. Or What the heck is a kick sled? Oh, a kick sled. Okay, so they're used a lot in uh, the Scandinavian countries. So it usually has a seat and then it has two runners on it. So kind of like blades I guess long blades and so there's a handle at the back of the seat and somebody stands behind and so you basically kick on it so you can um, you know kind of run with it and then you put one foot on one runner and you can kick with the other foot and then stand on the other runner and slide so they can be used on packed snow or on 
uh, ice. Um, some of the Scandinavian cities actually have pathways that have packed snow all winter. And so they're really good, especially for people with any kind of mobility issue, because it keeps them, it keeps them stable uh, while they're walking. Some, instead of a seat, have a basket where they can carry their shopping home. Um, you know, so yeah. So kick sleds are are fun. We um, our outdoor um, adventure team down at the parks has had them out this winter. Um, a lot of the festivals use them. Um, sometimes you can have races with them and you know they're just a fun piece of equipment I've actually seen people down in the River Valley parks uh, with them I saw a fellow um, this winter he he was uh, standing on the kick sled and he had a child on the seat and then he had hooked it up to his dog and the dog was having a wonderful time pulling them um, along the trail so we are seeing more kind of private kick sleds uh, in the city which is great it's a lot of fun yeah. yeah, that's funny because to me it looks like a dog sled without the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so no, they're yeah. bringing it back. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, so you said that you got into this all because of your experience going to parks across Alberta and BC, where they were dead in the winter. Um, you've been working on this for over a decade now. Uh, can you, like, if funding was not an issue? <laughs> Can you describe what the perfect winter city park would look like to you? Oh, wow. Um, I think the park would have, you know, daytime activities, but also lighting for evening. Uh, it would have uh, warming spaces. It would have an, an indoor pavilion with washrooms. Um, it would have probably a cafe, like the one we've got down at Harlech Park. Um, and patio space outside so people can sit outside on a nice day. Uh, probably also, you know, a basket or a box of blankets that people can use. Uh, what else? Oh, lots of people. Um, just, just enjoying themselves outside. So, yeah, room for skating, room for cross-country skiing, room for walking. Um, you know, and for all ages and all abilities, too. So walking paths that are cleared, that are easy to access. Um, yeah. yeah. And so what do we need to make that happen here in Edmonton? Well, I think we're on our way. I think um, the, we have been working to get more food vendors into the River Valley parks. Um, there are... Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would like to see. I think that's our next next step. Um, but we are, like you said, at the end of our 10 years. Uh, so we are doing an evaluation uh, right now. And so where we go from here, I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll see where the evaluation takes us and, um, you know, what the recommendations are. I, I, I think the work should continue. It, it will probably look quite different. Um, you know, after 10 years, our needs are different and what people are doing and not doing are different. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll see where we go from here. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your experience with, uh, and insight into this with us. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thanks so much, Anna. Yeah, thanks.
So what do you think? Are Edmonton's parks doing good by our identity as a winter city? You know, it was interesting hearing Isla talking about the infrastructure problem of sewer lines being too shallow to keep the bathrooms open in the winter because I feel like I've been um, trained not to even go to some parks in the winter because I just assume the bathrooms are going to be closed and it's so annoying and inconvenient <laughs> that I like in winter I tend to go to River Valley and Ravine spaces where I, I just I, I'm like I'm on my own. Um, <laughs> So, uh, like places with lots of trees that you can hide behind to make use of. <laughs> I mean, potentially, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I feel like maybe I haven't taken advantage of some of the changes the city has been making. If that's going on, I, I, I mean, I feel like you're maybe a better litmus test because you have small humans that you need to, to entertain in the winter. Yeah, I mean, I think having talked to Danielle and Isla and uh, and talking to friends throughout the making of this episode, I think that there's obviously a lot of work that could still be done, like having four pilot warming huts. Uh, there's, as we know, there's hundreds of parks in Edmonton. Uh, was it 400? Um, mm -hmm. So we've got warming huts in three of them, maybe two. <laughs> um, but I think that for me, it really is impactful to think about the culture of thinking of ourselves as winter people, mm. uh, just like Isla was talking about there. I think that there's just so much to do. We just have to think about the winter as um, an opportunity instead of something to hold us back and keep us stuck indoors. So I think that that part of what they're doing on the Winter City Strategy is really important. The cultural think, change? The cultural shift, yeah. Mm. I, think, I think that gets us a long way. Yeah. So, well, thank you for indulging me, Chris. <laughs> I think your question is one shared by a lot of listeners out there. So thanks for asking it. And thank you for listening. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative that is doing some of the most interesting, curiosity-driven, thoughtful reporting in our city. If you want to support Let's Find Out with some sweet, sweet cash, we encourage you to become a Taproot member. For just $10 a month or 100 bucks a year, you can help ensure that everyone continues to have free access to Let's Find Out, as well as Speaking Municipally and other podcasts, plus the rest of Taproot's coverage of City Council and food and arts and tech. Learn more at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. This episode was produced by Chris Chang and Phillips and me, Trevor Chow Fraser. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much to this month's guests, Elliot, Ryan Oscuthorpe, Daniel Sonef, and Isla Tanaka. Music for Let's Find Out is by the bracingly lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Until next time, keep your questions coming. And now, a footnote. Okay, I'm going to leave this running because I want to show you now the footnote thing. Oh, yeah. um, do you mind holding okay. the yeah. thing? <clears throat> so this is in this is in Winnipeg. Um, do you, I, you've uh, been, I, I guess, around that area, like sort of.
near City Hall, between like the river and City Hall, yeah. there's um, the old pump house building that is now a restaurant. Right. And there's a plaque right beside it that I just found hilarious. So, and also the other context for this is the general strike, 1919 yep. Winnipeg. Okay, so this plaque says Victoria Park, 1894 to 1924. So we're looking at an epitaph here. Yeah. <laughs> Victoria Park, established in 1894 by the City of Winnipeg Public Parks Board, was located on this site. Despite its small size and proximity to a railway track, Winnipeg's fourth public park immediately became popular with nearby residents. During the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike, mass meetings of strikers and their supporters from the social gospel-inspired and pro-strike labor church and soldiers returning from the Great War regularly occurred in what became referred to as Liberty Park. The strikers' use of the park angered anti-strike businessmen on the parks board. This, combined with the city's need for enhanced revenue, resulted in the sale of Victoria Park to the Winnipeg Hydroelectric System in 1923-24. Subsequently, the Amy Street steam plant was established here, providing heat for many buildings in Winnipeg's downtown exchange district for more than six decades. They saw that this park was used for useful and effective labor organizing and took away the park from the public. <laughs> it's kind of a political topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. 